the Buffalo Podcast. Hi everyone, it's Monique Gordion, and the great news is you found the podcast, a space for stories that will arouse a smile and inspire us as we tap into our collective experiences. Enjoy. Welcome everybody to the Buffalo Podcast. So great to have you back again. I have the great pleasure of Megan Norris on today, an author who I met at the Queensland Writers Group. How are you, Megan? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for coming on on the Buffalo Podcast. And I'm excited to hear your stories. So it's all over to you. Well, I've always loved telling people's stories. I love hearing about them. And I find them everywhere I go. I found one yesterday, actually. But wherever I go, I find another story, which uh, and people never fail to amaze me because what mm. they, don't, they don't consider to be particularly interesting because they're living it, you know? It's so I true. Oh. I find it amazing. So, it, yeah, I've done lots of... I was thinking this morning about... I, I, I write crime for a living, as you know. I write crime. And mm. crime, the sort of crime that I write is pulling your heart out crime, gut-wrenching mm. crime. Oh. But, and it is, and it, it really is painful, mm. painful stuff. Mm. Uh, but crime can be quite funny. And I, I was thinking this morning, I was telling someone this morning that I used to work for The Truth, because she said, how do you write that stuff like that? I said, oh, I had a, I had a secret life where I used to write <laughs> filth for a living. And I was, was it a, an untapped talent that I didn't know that I had? <laughs> for listeners the truth i believe is a newspaper in the uk is that correct correct the truth was an, an australian rag oh, oh australian <laughs> okay <laughs> uh, well, I came from the uk in 1990 to live here the truth was a very uh, notorious um tabloid that had a cult following of all sorts of people and they had particularly sleazy or seedy agony column called heart balm oh <laughs> which I didn't write I also did <laughs> and I, I started off covering stories when I first came I set up a press agency so I was writing quite serious crime um, and pitching crime for to daily papers to channel nine to channel 10 to the tv and radio networks mm-hmm. and then I got this call from this guy called Tim at the truth saying <laughs> he was just reading the story that I'd written which was a greatly sanitised version of the real story because it was for for general family consumption. So I tidied this story up and he rang and said, that story that you wrote, he said, was there a very um, unsavoury past to that story? I said, oh, yes, there was. It was very unprintable. At which he said, well, you know what? If, if you're prepared to write that story again for us with all the dirty stuff that oh nobody else would, we will pay you very well for that. The more sordid, the better. Oh so God. I thought, oh, I don't know if I want to do <laughs> I started writing these stories for the truth. And they were they were just hilarious. They were hilarious. They were awful, but they were all true, <laughs> believe it or not. I used to laugh and people would say, oh, you can't believe anything that was in there. Every word was true. Every oh, word I wrote. Really? So I I was just sharing that with someone this morning because she wondered how I could turn my hand to that kind of thing quite so well. So <laughs> a lot of, and I had my name. The deal was I would do it, mm. but I wanted a staff correspondent. So mm. I was only ever known as a staff correspondent, oh. which was a good thing because at the time I was doing some quite um, 
I was doing council corporate stuff. I was doing newspapers, uh, producing mm. newspapers for councils. And I didn't think they would appreciate <laughs> seeing my name on the front page of Truth, which it was regularly, under either a pseudonym or staff correspondent, which was very anonymous. Yeah. So I, I did a variety of, but it was funny. And I did this story once. I, I remember it. I remember all those stories mm. like they were yesterday because they were memorable because they were outrageous. Mm. And I did a story where these um, this poor little Greek young boy, this adolescent, had, was love-stricken, a love-struck patsy, <laughs> and he <laughs> fell in love with this beautiful woman that told him she was an undercover operative and her mm. job was she was working undercover for Victoria Police, infiltrating drug rings in Melbourne. And she couldn't tell him anything about the work, but it required her working at night. <laughs> in high heels. <laughs> and he was about 19, 18 or 19, but he was utterly in love with her. And mm. she couldn't tell him about her work. Mm. Or, and he couldn't know anything about it because it would put her life in danger, which, of course, he didn't want to do. But he ended up racking up debts like you wouldn't believe on credit cards to buy her beautiful gifts because she was very... You know, well, he thought she was very well healed and he bought her all these things. He got into all sorts of trouble with credit card scams mm. and it out that she was a hooker. <laughs> of course she was. And uh, and he ended up coming to court. And, you know, when you when you look at the court list, it just has a list of, you know, burglary, fraud. It always looks boring on the court list, but it's it's not the court list that's of any interest. It's the defence. You know, it's not what he's actually done. It's why why he did that mm. so I'm sitting in court and his little Greek nana come to court oh. to, to stick up for him to speak oh. up for him oh he's a good boy he's a stupid boy <laughs> he's a good boy crack he's a good boy but boy the minute he grows his bits his brain shrinks <laughs> oh. it was love and he didn't mean to do it and he's got working hard to pay all the money back but this heartbreaking story came out mm. and I thought oh you know the poor sap anyway yeah. I wrote this story the truth ran it on the front cover and it was a really funny story yeah and he I ended up I was driving down the freeway to one of my corporate jobs and I put the radio on and I heard on the radio they were saying you know the poor love-struck young sap who's been who's been hoodwinked by a hooker and you know to, to because he was in love it was a crime of passion all this stuff advertised in this week's new improved truth ah, that <laughs> was you my awful stories were being used to rebrand and repackage this cd publication that got cd <laughs> <laughs> so did he get off this young love this young boy with his love he didn't get quite the punishment he might otherwise have had, except that poor Greek Nana's comments made colourful reading. Yes, I bet. <laughs> and probably attracted more attention to him than he would have liked. He was so embarrassed and shy. The oh. poor thing. So he ended up with no money, debts, community service, and no girlfriend. Oh. <laughs> well, hopefully he learned his lesson. <laughs> like, oh, hopefully. But it was, it was a beautiful, you know, and I used to think I really enjoyed it because mm. it was out. Now, I, I've never done anything like that in my life. And it bought the kids bikes that Christmas. Oh. I bought them bikes with all my ill games. <laughs> That's <laughs> fantastic. I think, I think we went on an overseas trip and my mother, when, she, when my husband told her what I'd been writing, she was so shocked. She <laughs> said, I cannot believe that you're using your talents in that way. I said, how do you think, how do you think we got it? 
But you did work for other publications as well as The Truth, didn't you? When I I first came from England, I remember someone coming up to me because I thought I'd been a court reporter in the UK. Mm. So I set up the court agency and I literally, I figured out where all the daily paper journalists were on the Herald Sun and the Age, and there weren't many of them. There were about five court reporters on their team, but about 50 courts. And mm. I thought, well, they cannot be everywhere at once. So I'm going to work for myself and I'm going to I'm going to go where they're not there. I'll go mm. and I'll nick stories from under their noses and I will sell them. So uh, I went to court, this went to Ringwood and I had, I sort of pigeonholed the courts. So Ringwood was generally violent thieving, oh. but creative thieving, whereas Heidelberg was sexual assault and sleazy type pedophilia type things and uh, and Healesville was my uh, my favorite court was Lilydale court because it took in the catchment of Healesville in the Yarra Valley and they were out there they were very green-fingered it was Jack and the Beanstalk country Mm. they used to they were wise up there they planted their seeds in other people's holiday home gardens (laughs) like you wouldn't believe I see I wanted a good a good drug story um, or a really strange story, mm. I would go to Lily Bell Court, which was a tiny, weeny little court next to a primary school. And, and, and it was funny because there wasn't room. It was a tiny little old court. There wasn't room for all the crims in court because it was too small. So they all lay on the grass and sunbaked. <laughs> and I, and I, okay. They used to lie on the lawn outside next to the primary school and sunbake. And I would step over them in my high heels with my briefcase I'd step over all these bodies and then the police would you know the police would call they'd have to go outside it was so different to England because in my English courts it was all very ceremonial and mm-hmm. you know all the ladies and lords of the court draw near it was all very sort of because mm-hmm. I covered high court the steeped in spectacle and tradition mm-hmm. Lilydale was my first taste of Australian courts and the cop the, the prosecutor the copper in court would go to the front doorstep and shout Maka get in here Maka where are you anyway it turns out this crim was called he was called Ronald McDonald oh he, was called, he really that... was called Ronald McDonald oh, <laughs> I, I mean I was sitting there a bit bored until they shouted out Ronald McDonald and I'm like <laughs> So I go over to the policeman. I said, "Is that his real name?" And he said, "Yeah." He said, "He's a regular. You'll be seeing a lot of him." So anyway, I listened to this story, and he'd stolen stuff, and it's stolen. It was all stealing stuff, and he'd stolen stuff. And so I, he, and it was Christmas. It was right before Christmas, mm. and in the middle of him being sentenced, the primary school kids next door came out to play and play break it. So in the middle, it was a bizarre court, and I'd sit there. And the judge, the magistrate is about to give his sentence and Ronald is going to jail mm. <laughs> for Christmas. As he's about to sentence him, the primary school next door started playing Frosty the Snowman on loudspeaker <laughs> because the kids next door had just finished play break. And the magistrate clearly was used to that. He just paused. He said, give them a moment. So we all sat and listened to Christmas <laughs> You know, that sounds like a scene from a movie, doesn't it? An Aussie movie, humorous movie. I was sitting there thinking if only my friends at Shrewsbury Crown Court could yes. see me here, <laughs> here right now with all these sunbakers. And anyway, <laughs> when, I got, 
Ronald got, I think Ronald did go to bed. And I wrote that he did not get a happy meal that Christmas. He was not a happy, he was not a happy hamburglar. He was not a happy hamburglar. He got this attention. And folks, you know, he got this attention. So when he came back, I'm not sure whether he got a suspended sentence. I think it might have been. But the next time he appeared, he sought me out. He like, I'm over here. <laughs> here. Me, Ronald McDonald. And I've got something else. <laughs> of course you have. <laughs> it was just, and what was really lovely about those little courts, that, that they all worked really hard out there. The lawyers, the defence barristers, everyone worked really hard. They were very busy. Mm. But uh, they never got any coverage until then. And suddenly... Oh everybody's covered, you know, they're getting covered everywhere. And because uh, my stories would be picked up by other people. Mm. Ronald McDonald became a bit of a Ned Kelly. Oh, did he? <laughs> and burgling. <laughs> That's so funny. What, what turned you to writing novels? Like when was that in the process? Was that early days or? Yeah, uh, I didn't, I, they're not novels. They're all true crime. Oh, Okay, so books, yeah, true crime. I've got true crime at my fingertips. Mm. Well, of course, you know, uh, and then I've, I've actually thought I should write a funny story on all the silly stuff, really, but I... You I should, up, that would be great. I, I should. Yeah. Make it up, and I still have kept the stories, and they're mad. Oh, good. <laughs> I went to... Um, I, I started to cover the courts in the city because when I was covering the magistrates' court, that's the grassroots, that's where they would originally go before they're sent to the committal court. Mm -hmm. and then sent to the higher court to stand trial. So I would know these cases were coming up before they reached the city, so I could sneak in and steal stories that the Daily Papers didn't know about yet. They relied upon the police to tell them, and if the police didn't tell them, and there were a lot of things the police didn't know in those Mm -hmm. courts. So I would be there at the committal, and then I would be there at the trial. And I did a really tragic, tragic murder, Mm -hmm. uh, and it was single white white female star murder. Uh, where a young girl, teenage girl, had killed another teenage girl, oh. a neighbour. And it was a little girl babysat for. And she killed the little girl over the road. And she plotted and schemed this. She drafted a blueprint for murder, revised it. And five years later, after plotting and scheming, carried it out and killed this poor little girl. Can, what sort of age are we talking about here? Well, she was 19 when she killed. But what I found really disturbing that was that at... 15, 14, 15, she was formulating. The plan was in her head. Wow. And that's very young. That's yeah. very young to be formulating that sort of fantasy plan for murder. And it actually, she carried it out to the letter. You know, Good. she drafted a blueprint. She carried it out. And uh, what the idea was, she was a very unhappy girl with two younger sisters. And over the road were a family with an older girl with two younger sisters. And the oldest girl, Caroline Reed Robertson, in the one family, set her sights on, really, it was sad, you know, I want, she's happy, that girl over the road, she's got a happy life. They may not have the money we have, Mm. but she's got a life. I want her life. In Mm. fact, I want to be her. And in order to be her, I might need to remove her, which she did. Yeah, so she plotted this horrible murder, lured her to a flat in Paran in Melbourne, and strangled and murdered her and buried her body in the country uh, on her father's farm. So it was a very, on a, it was like a hobby farm. So she went out into the country and buried her. 
And everyone thought that this little girl, Rachel Barber, was a runaway. Oh. But she, her mother and father said something terrible has happened. She would never run away. She just didn't come home from dancing school. And by the time the police realised it, you know, because look, when I was on the newspaper, most reports from police or parents relating to missing girls, most kids that go missing are 15-year-old girls. They've usually done something naughty. They've got in cahoots with a friend, stayed over, haven't had the courage to ring mum and dad and tell them where they are. They might stay away a couple of days and then they come back a bit sorry, you know. Yeah. So on a newspaper, we would not have run a story on a missing girl that had been gone 12 hours. No. How old is she? 15. Immediately, we're not going to, we're not really going to panic about that story. Sure. Not just yet. No. But by the time she became a missing person, she was dead. And she'd already been killed. So I, I covered that trial and I wrote stories about it for, I think I might have written it for Woman's Day or one of those tabloid magazines. And um, and mum, actually, uh, you know, I went to interview mum. I interviewed mum and dad and the little sisters. It was a terrible case. And mum said, I'm thinking of writing a book when the trial is over. And um, I I could do with someone to help me write it. That someone... <laughs> This is the mother of the murdered child. Mother of the murdered or child the wanted to write young a book. woman. Yeah. No, the mother of the child wanted to write a book about about how it happened, really, mm. and she wanted to understand. I think she wanted to understand how it happened, and mm. they'd been family friends. The two families were close friends. It was a, it was terrible, and um, she'd approached Penguin Books because her father uh, um, was a well-known. Australian children's author so he had a publisher and I think the publishing company were very well aware that this was Ivan Southwell's granddaughter that had been murdered so anyway their mum had got an idea for a book but they wanted they didn't think it would work on its own a, a mother writing a story about a murdered child they wanted to know it was a story of two girls which mm. it was it was a story of as much the story of the girl who killed as the girl who was killed so they wanted a journalist who would write a narrative and bring it all together. So we'd have two parallel stories, really. Mum's yes. heartbreak of not being heard when she said, my daughter's not missing, something has happened. Mm. Her, her, her experience of not being taken seriously enough, soon enough, mm. and, and how hard and painful that loss was. Mm. And ca casualties, which were the rest of the family. And my job was to provide a narrative of what the police were doing because they were investigating mm. they were working and a police analysis um, going into work one day on the train saw posters the family had gone up putting posters everywhere you looked mm. because the police weren't treating it seriously they felt mm. and he noticed all these posters on every station on the way into the city and he he thought somebody's really seriously looking for this girl that mm. so we, we did ought to look into it mm. and he went straight missing persons and said we need to look into this so what happened was I was recruited or commissioned to, to work in a partnership with Elizabeth Southall the girl's mother mm -hmm. to write the other side of the story mm. what the what the background to the young girl that killed the 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 terrible letters that she wrote which were cries for help that nobody noticed they who, went unnoticed who did she write the letters to well she just wrote letters you know plans um oh plans. I see wrote a plan to herself it was a self-help reinvention plan it was like a transformation plan how to change in 21 days so did, plan. did she how did, did she uh, achieve her goal of becoming uh, 
supposedly this person? Like, how did that happen? Ironically, she did. It's quite, I thought that was quite ironic. By the time it came to court, she'd been in prison on remand, obviously, for, for murder. Mm. She, had, she had lost an incredible amount of weight because her plans, she, there was a real self-loathing about her. Mm. You know, I, 21, how to change in 21 days, lose weight, get plastic surgery, mm. um, do this, do that, facials, like go in a spa, all these plans. When she came to court, courtesy of Her Majesty's Diet, at the Deer Park prison, she had shed an incredible amount of weight. Mm. She had grown her hair, which was gothic. She had long, dark, gothic. She was a very gothic-looking girl. She dyed, stopped dyeing her hair this black that she had, and she'd actually got this wavy angel-like hair mm. and was, like, a, a shrunk from a, a large size to a very tiny, fragile little thing that was almost... I say it was like Rachel, but what she'd done was she developed a fantasy... A persona. She was going to come back as this new, reinvent herself as this new person called Jem Southall. Southall being Rachel's mother's name, and she was going to, so she invented this fancy fantasy persona. And the fantasy girl was going to be slim, have angel-like hair. She drew sketches. She was going to be pretty, and she was going to have a smile like Katie Holmes off Dawson's Creek yes. because that was soap at the time. She was going to have an ingenue look like Claire Danes off Romeo and Juliet. And she actually did. And wow. she stood in the dock and I was like, oh, wow, she really has, ironically, through that poor girl's death, reinvented herself through this terrible crime. How long ago was that? I think the book came out in 2001. Pretty sure it came out in 2001. So she's probably still in jail, I guess. No, she's not. She's out. Oh. She's been out of the community for quite a while, yeah. Really? Um, got a new name and all of that sort of thing? Or? I have no doubt she would have. I have yeah. no doubt she would have. Yeah. No, I don't know where she is. And no. uh, I know that I'm pretty certain the family would know where she is, uh, the, the murder girl's family, because yes. then I'm pretty certain they added their names to the victims of crime register. And whilst that's reassuring to them in some ways, because they're on the register, they're allowed to know whether she moves prisons or when she's up for parole or when she's released. It gives them some certainty of knowing that they're not yeah. going to run into her in the street. You know, yes. they sort of know that she's been released. But what it doesn't do is allow them to know where she goes. Yes. Well, I mean, that, I guess, is to protect her from or protect the the person who did the crime from a revenge attack or something like that. Would you say? I think well, it's to people do their time. Yeah. They're punished for their crime. Yeah. She was very young. She was 19. And with time, she did, what, 15 years, 14 mm. years for that crime. Mm. I know that the family live a life sentence, the family of the murder yes. girl, for a life sentence, but she is, in all, to all intents and purposes, rehabilitated in the eyes mm. of the law. So she's served a debt to society. And... So it's, it's a double-edged sword. They're not allowed to know where she is, which I mm. think must be very, which must be very painful. Well, that's a dramatic but sad tale. So mm. so sad for both families. You know, both parents really. They've lost. It was very and lost and I, I think looking back on all of that, that's why I would go off and do chirpy stuff. Like mm. I would go off. And do, I did a cat once that went was that crawled into an open front washing machine at Christmas. It crawled in amongst the sheets and snuggled down for a nap. And Mum put the, the oh, washing on. No, and, it was, and everything. And the and the, the <gasps> poor little 
she went round a, a 1200 cycle <gasps> and when she pulled all the, the stuff out the wet washing out this little lump of clump of wet fluff like fell out and it was the cat and they took her to the vet and said I don't think it's going to survive the night but we'll see and the next morning they went down to the vets and the cat was standing up licking milk and eating its food <laughs> it just literally lost its five nine lives in a single hit and, yeah and so I that's incredible so I did lucky the lucky his name was lucky lucky <laughs> from the dead but I look back and I would deliberately then having done mm. stories of that especially for a book when you're doing a book it's intense you are with yeah. a story I'd, I'd listen in court and it breaks your heart mm. and I would interview family which would rip your heart out and then I would write that emotional story but it's a story and it's over but when you're working on a book with people it's intense you spend a mm. lot of time you mm. you become immersed in their grief mm. and i think it's very hard not to absorb it yes. i found it very hard because i had a, at the time my 15 year old son had leukemia oh heavens uh, yeah and rachel the little girl that was murdered was 15 when she was murdered and i'd got a son of the same age and originally when i was asked by elizabeth if i would help to do that book i said i didn't think that I was the person for the job because I didn't know that I could cope with that journey when I'd got a 15 year old son in remission from leukemia and still going for chemo. It was like she was living my worst nightmare of losing a child. I didn't uh, know that I could, yes. that I could do it. But she actually came back and said, but you are a mother. I recommended someone else actually, mm. and uh, the journalist. And she came back and said, no, because you understand that pain. You, you've got to know us now and you have a son. You have a child. You you know what that feels like. I said, but I don't know what it feels like to have lost him. No. I can't bear. Can't bear to think about that. No. But anyway, that that's how I. That was my first trip. So I did it. <laughs> so what was your? Did you have like a coping mechanism that you did to um, get through that, or or you just pressed on? I just pressed on. Mm. And I, I think at the time I was having family, we were having family counselling. We were having counselling through the hospital in Monash uh, in Melbourne because families struggle, as we know, you know, as anyone who's been on a journey like that or anyone who's got a disabled child, living a child living with a disability or mm. serious, you, you, you understand that it affects the whole family. Mm. And I noticed when I, afterwards when I would interview parents who'd got a child, with cancer mm. they would say we we went to appointments we we do this we because you all it, it, it sort of affects everybody mm. so I found I, I found that I would share some of the stuff that I was working on mm. during counseling and that would give me a little bit of clarity mm. but, but I did didn't realize how much pain I absorbed over many many years until this year and my parents were both diagnosed with COVID in the UK. My my elderly parents in their mid eighties both both contracted COVID. Dad had gone into hospital and came out with COVID and gave it mum. Oh no, really? No, and they were so 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 ill. They were so oh. ill. No one could go there. My sister who lives in the UK. She couldn't go there. No one could was allowed to go to the house, and they were so ill they nearly died. It was a oh. terrible time, yes. and I was had a meltdown mm. that that just set me over I had we just moved house we got all sorts of stuff going on and then that happened and I had a, a mini meltdown there where I just 
I just couldn't function. I was getting up in the middle of the night, calling England, fretting that they might, you know, are they okay? Have everyone mm. spoke to? You know, it was a real stressful time. And as I stopped driving, I got panicky. I was having, I didn't know what was happening to me. No. I was having attacks. I couldn't get it. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't work. I couldn't do anything. And I had to speak to someone at that time. Mm-hmm. And she said, she asked me about the job that I had done. And she said, over how many years? I said, 40. <laughs> 40. <laughs> she said, 40 years of absorbing other people's grief and pain mm. so what what counseling did you have and I said well no I do things like I relax by watching silence of the lambs <laughs> I relax by watching I, I relax by watching back-to-back episodes of of Breaking Bad because I love <laughs> one of my favorite shows yes and I love so, it so I unwind I was unwinding by watching more misery <laughs> <laughs> but, but it was Yes, but you weren't actually involved in their lives, so that was. But but she was she was the first person I'd never even thought about Mm. it. That's how do you debrief Mm. from all that pain? And I Mm. I've actually become the secretary of a yachting social club, a Ah. boaty social club, the Clipper Club, in Redway Bay, and I'm the social secretary as a volunteer, and I think that's my relief. I my all this pain is I go off and I organize parties so at the oh, moment God. I'm organizing I'm helping to organize October for all the oldies so I thought well I'll do that so I'm party party yes. planner great and it's a people says what are you doing all that for because yeah. I care and it's yeah. and it's great to see everybody having a good time oh yes so yes yes so that's you know you're bringing you're a, sort of a conduit for bringing joy to these people, and that's a joy for you. That's makes you happy, makes them happy, it makes you happy. happy. And to yeah. be honest, some of the other books I wrote that were very painful to write, mothers mm. who'd had their murdered, subsequent books, mm. and I'm dealing with mothers who've lost their kids. I always have to say, I, I sort of detach myself and go into a different place because otherwise I can't do their stories justice if I no. get to them. No. So I sort. Of I'm coming from an outside point of view, looking at the, the story angle mm. and focus on the story. But what I have to do is say, don't show me the photos till the end. Oh. I have to leave the photos till it's written, completely yes. written. Now you can show me the photos. And then I collect all the photos to go to press and caption them. And they absolutely keep me up at night mm. because there's these little smiling faces. Oh. And you look, you look at all the potential they had and all oh. the dreams mum had for them and all the milestones they're never going to reach and the weddings they're never going to have and the babies mm. they have and I I feel now like goosey thinking about but I have to leave those photographs till mm. the end because if all those photographs first I couldn't do it no well you sound like you're quite an empathic kind of person you um, can understand well, maybe not understand, but you have a sense of the pain with the person that you're you're dealing with, and there's something called compassion fatigue, isn't there? Where you you just get exhausted yeah. from all of that, from giving and yeah. so on. I listen, you know, so I'm listening to it. Mm. I'm trying to process it. Mm. I'm trying to understand it mm. so that I can represent their truth mm. in mm. writing. And in order to understand it, you 
you have to process it and it's painful. Yes, yes. And I think that's why I did the loopy stories I did. One of my favourite, <laughs> to tell you my favourite, favourite story ever. Oh, please. Old guy, an old guy, in a, an old Greek guy in a nursing home in Melbourne mm-hmm. who who was a very naughty old chap and he made himself homemade still. Oh, <laughs> still. And he'd hidden it in his room at the old folks' home and he was distilling grappa. Oh. And all the old were having a drink of this grappa. Yeah. And, he, and he must have upset someone because someone dobbed him in. Uh-huh. One of the old dobbed him in. And and it was serious. So he didn't know it was serious. Oh. Uh, so what, it was the Customs and Excise Police. Oh, my God. Raided the old folks' home, seized his still and took it away. <laughs> the still, and, and he came, had to come to court. So he didn't know, but his... The, the, no one knew. The magistrate didn't know what to do with him. It's like he'd never been in trouble in his life. He was about 89. What did oh. he do with him? And the penalty turned out to be something like, I don't know the figure now, but say eight times the amount of liquid he'd illegally manufactured. <sighs> so it was a fine of like millions. It, oh. Millions. So he he was really upset and anxious. I thought he was going to die. But his defence was he did not drink it. He wasn't distilling that amount of grappa for consumption. He was distilling it so he could pour it in a bath and bathe in it for his emphysema. <laughs> <laughs> That's what he said. <laughs> and the magistrate laughed out loud. The magistrate said, I'm sorry, Mr. whatever he was called, but ever since the days of Elliot Ness and the Dukes of Hazard, anyone with a still is drinking the stuff. <laughs> and he said, all I can say is, I'm very glad you didn't smoke in that bath because you'd have all gone up with it. <laughs> oh. Favorite story. So you have to keep a sense of humour oh. and like old. I think. Did, did he get off? Did was he okay? He got he got a telling off and he got oh. a small fine. He got oh, a small fine. That's good. But he was so panic stricken when it, and in fact nobody, even the police were shocked. Nobody, but the magistrate, I said, are you insisting on sticking by that defence? And he was like, yes, I'm sticking by that defence. And the magistrate said, well, I don't know if I'm going to ask someone in the court to make a call to the Austin Hospital to find out if that's a recognised cure for emphysema. (laughs) Somehow I don't think so, but good on on the defence team for, you know, creating such a... An excuse. I mean, that's got to go down in the annals, doesn't it? For sure. And the best and the worst excuses. I could fill a book very do that very easily. You know, I think I think that would be a great book. Do you think that would be good for you, like to bring up those stories? Yes, it would because you know there there were some mad motivations for crime. Yes, came about, and and I just think. It used to bring a laugh to my face, you know, and, yeah. and people, I remember someone saying to me in court when I was new, are you from Hinch? And I didn't know what Hinch was. <laughs> I was new from the UK. I didn't know what Hinch was. I didn't know it's a TV show, like a hard-hitting. Oh, Darren Hinch. They thought I was from Hinch. Yeah. And I told Darren Hinch that sometime later when he came to interview me, he came to interview me over one of the books I'd written. And I said, you know, when I first came from England, People used to ask me if I was from Hinch, and I was intrigued. I didn't know what it was. <laughs> so why did they think you were from Hinch? I mean, do you know why? 
Yes, because I was very straight-laced mm. <laughs> <laughs> and business-like and because no one had ever covered that court before. Oh. They never got a lot of attention before. And suddenly all these hard-hitting stories are appearing in papers on TV and weird stuff is going in the truth. And in fact, I think if those barristers were truthful, mm. they were quite impressed with themselves getting in the truth. It did their professional credibility. <laughs> 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 clients what a what a colorful interesting career you've had and is no doubt still having because I believe you're writing a book right now well I have been working all year Mm. but I've thought but the book that is that is coming out is one that I wrote before post pre-covid and and then I lost my nerve and thought oh I'm useless I don't know what I'm doing there's no dog's home I've always wanted to work in the dog's home and I did actually apply for a dog in the dog job in the dog's home uh, and I didn't get it and I was oh. really at that level of more of a failure when I couldn't even get a dog job in the dog's home but um, I, I I didn't work because I was all stressed about my parents and mm. I just need time to sort of I, I can't write when I'm not in a good place no. um so I needed to clear my head and then mm. Someone kept my friend. I've got a bossy friend called Kim who kept saying, What have you done with that manuscript? And I'd say, No, nothing. And you don't send that manuscript off. I'm going to come and do it. I'm going to take it and do it for you. So I sent the manuscript to Penguin Book. Yeah. Not expecting that, you know, by which time I'd convinced myself my saboteur, my self saboteur mm. had kicked in and I was saying, Oh, just, you know, my I've done three years on this book. It's mm. probably not any good. You know, what if it's not any good? What if it's not good enough? What if I haven't done this poor girl justice in this book? Blah, blah. Mm. I do the thing I do, imposter syndrome. Yes. And people back about three days later going, is, is this book finished? Because I sent three, I sent a brief. Yeah. That's what I sent a brief. And they said, have you got any, is it done? And I said, well, I, I sent three chapters. That's what they asked for. Mm. And then they rang and said, like with, uh, within a few days, c- could we have some more? Have you got three more? I said, yes. And she said, how far are you of finishing this book? I thought it was written last year. She said, <laughs> say, send the whole thing. She so I sent the thing. And she rang back a few days later and said, we want this book. We really want this book. And I was really shocked. And then, and I've got this thing that I do. When I do get a really good, you know, when I do get a really good reception, mm. I always think I just got lucky. I sort of have this, I got lucky <laughs> where I think oh that was a stroke of luck that was a bit of luck <laughs> I never think I earned it I don't think I did. I think I just well you know it's amazing because what you've done seven books I think you said yes. and it I remember when we, I heard you speak at the writers at um the writers group uh those thoughts that you've just expressed and it's encouraging for us to hear that because, you know, we all or many of us can go through self-sabotage thinking we're not good enough. And, and here you are, a published author and, you know, being on Hinch and just all the things that you've done and you still occasionally, uh, you know, suffer these same slings and arrows of self-doubt. So That's I appreciate you sharing that because... Uh, it's a very authentic thing to share, and it, and yet here you go, Penguin wanted. I mean, you know, it's just defies all those 
negative things that you thought, right? Really does. And mm. I rang up the girl who I've written the book for because it was just sitting idling there. And we mm. sort of said, well, we've just gone into the first lockdown a year ago to 2020. I haven't done anything. And um, I said, oh, perhaps now's not a good time to be pitching a book where airports are closed, bookshops are closed, nobody mm. can go out shopping. Maybe now's not a great time. And then I thought, oh, maybe that's when people are reading, though. There's mm. nothing else to do at home. Maybe it is a good time. I sort of talked myself in and out of it. But basically, I wasn't in a very good place to cope with. I'm good with rejection because I've been rejected a very lot. <laughs> I've had a lot of in my face. You know, oh, would you like to tell me about your poor loved one that's passed away? And I get the door slammed on me. So I'm sort of good with rejection. Mm. But I wasn't in a good enough place to be able to go, oh, well. Yeah. I wasn't in enough place. And I think that's why I sat on it longer than I might otherwise. Well, that's but, that's self-care, actually. That's beautiful example of self-care. Do you think? No, oh, absolutely. Because uh, you your intuition said, I'm not, it's not the right time for me. And you listen to that. And you know, and lo and behold, it all worked out at another time. So, you know, yeah, it's over you. Believers, the book that I've done has got religious undertone. Now, I'm not religious, but it's a very religious book. And um, the girl that I've done the story, written the story for, the book mm -hmm. is her book. Mm -hmm. um, she had was very philosophical. It was like, when the time's right. Mm. She was quite okay with it, you know, when the time's right. And lo and behold, I send this brief off, and suddenly everyone's going, oh, oh we really want <laughs> I couldn't believe my and I'm saying that now I couldn't believe my luck and my husband said you make your own luck and it's not mm. luck it's the result of all the work you put in That's over right. the three years before that yes, you know yes but yes anyway I just think I'm lucky I, I am lucky because I I get to do a job I absolutely love yes. I love writing stories oh that's great and, and you know people my my kids don't think it's a, a real job because I've always typed you know and have <laughs> writing books possibly be a real job anyway what don't get a real job <laughs> <laughs> oh well doesn't matter you I think it's a real job it's a wonderful job um so you do ghost writing or is this actually writing in your name uh, this is writing in my name I've told the story mm. so the arrangement was I'd get her book over the line mm. and I would tell the story but that's mm. Really, that's the only recognition I need because it's not about the money. Mm. It's not about the money because you've heard the expression starving authors. Well, <laughs> it's uh, pretty true. Yeah. So, you you know, there's not a squillion in books unless, of course, you happen to be the author of Harry Potter or... Um, <laughs> or Elizabeth you know, Gilbert, or, Eat, Pray, Love. Yeah, that, that was yeah, a biggie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and Leanne Moriarty. And that's mm. all just... I'll go to that. Actually, there is money. But in crime, which is mm. very, um, especially true crime, mm. although I do think now there's a bigger interest in it. Oh. People love people loved crime fiction. They and do. I, I'm, you know, and I love to. My favourite book is Gone Girl. My favourite oh. movie is, but my favourite book is Manson by Jeff Gwynn. My second favourite is Gone Girl. And I love the movie Gone Girl. I just watched it the other day. Gone oh, Girl. I love it. Yeah, it's so really clever. Not, when I'm not writing it, I'm devouring it. And my friend, um, Lorraine Peck, my good friend Lorraine Peck, who's a first-time debut author, mm -hmm. she just had, and you should have her, she would be wonderful on here. Mm -hmm. And Lorraine Peck, uh, her very first novel, 
just won the took out the Ned Kelly Literary Award. All right. And, and she it's the first time the first book she's written. She's now working on her sequel to that book. It's I read it in awe the other day, thinking Lorraine Peck, this plot is so amazing. The characters are so believable. I wanted to punch one or two of them. <laughs> Oh, well, I think we've been going quite a long time, so I think I'm going to have to end now. But you're such an interesting person. You've got so many great tales. And I just want to thank you so much for coming on the Buffalo podcast and giving me your time and all of us, all of my listeners. Really, thank you so much, Megan. Appreciate it. I just hope that you've got enough of what you need there to for it to be interesting because that's my other thing that I'm not interesting I'm just <laughs> talking all the time <laughs> well I I think everybody has an interesting story to tell and I you know I think once they're given an opportunity to share then just beautiful interesting challenging things um come out you know we often we don't know our story until we start speaking it out and we kind of go, oh, my God, really? That happened to me? Like, it's quite... That is very true. That yeah. is very true. Because mm. I've done interviews I've gone and people have shared what they think is the story. And then they'll put the kettle on after we've finished and make a drink and we sit down and then they tell me the story. But they yeah. didn't think it was the story. <laughs> and I think, why didn't you just tell me all of that? <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much, Megan. Um, and thank you, listeners. Go well. Live in joy. Ciao.